As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolas, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible Study. I'm Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. So last week, during our pre-recorded session of the Bible Study, I talked about Mark chapter 13. And I think most of the points I was trying to make didn't come out very clearly. Uh, in fact, I think I was riffing a little bit too much and wasn't stringing together my thoughts so in an attempt to try not to waste your time further, let me quickly condense what I was trying to get at within that chapter. So chapter 13 was the apocalypse of Mark. And the point I was trying to make is that whenever we see apocalyptic literature within the scriptures, there are kind of three modes that we can draw our minds to of interpreting the term apocalypse and interpreting the calamity that's being depicted. The first is historic. So whenever you hear an apocalypse being talked about, there's usually a historical example, uh, whether there be a flood where we see all of these flood narratives corresponding with evidence of massive floods that struck the earth, or whether it be, as we see in this example, the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD. Uh, these historic examples are there to remind us that there's always been some form of historical calamity. And that's to draw our attention to the second example or the second mode of where we're being drawn to when we're thinking about um, apocalypses or calamities, and that's the present. And this might be a way of trying to over-psychologize this, but each and every one of us is experiencing some form of hardship in our life. Or we have the capability of, doing, of experiencing such a hardship. So if there is some form of hardship or some form of calamity that we are each experiencing in the present day, well then... That leads us to the third and final mode, which is the future. And when we're talking about the oncoming calamity or the oncoming hardship, we're not exclusively talking about the end of this age. We are, in we'll say a typological sense, we are within a top-down type of sense. But in the same vein, if we're gonna try to psychologize this, as I all too often do, we're talking about the coming hardship that each and every one of us is going to have to face in this life. 
And that's because we have the track record of what we're experiencing in the present and what has been experienced in the past. And the reason why these three modes seem very important to understand from that chapter is because what Christ is telling us over and over again is to watch, to be vigilant. And the reason for that is there's all of these temptations and there are all of these things that are threatening to pull us away from our path towards life in him. And if we get hit by whatever calamity life throws our way, whatever hardship life throws our way, and we fall off the path, we get tempted off the path by some person offering us the easy way out or what have you, well then we will get stuck. We will not be able to proceed forward towards the life we're being called to in Christ in his messianic age, in his messianic kingdom, as we've talked about time and time again. So that's what I was trying to get at. The fact that we have these three ways of looking at apocalypses. We have this historic, we have this present, we have this future analysis that we can use. And that's to remind us that when hardship hits, when calamity hits our lives, we're still called to be able to prepare, 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 so that way when that inevitability hits, we're not swept under. So with that out of the way, this week we're talking about Mark chapter 14. And within chapter 14, we're going to see basically the capstone of what Mark has been leading up to in his gospel account. We're going to have the plot to kill Jesus take ahead. We're going to see his anointing in Bethany, which is going to prepare his body for burial. And we're going to see the Last Supper, followed by the Passion of Christ. And if we want to think about Mark in the way that he's writing his book, you can really think about him writing this book in reverse order. Because he begins with the empty tomb. The empty tomb is the re revelation, if you will, that he's trying to get at. And the capstone of the entire gospel is all the way back at the beginning in verse 1, chapter 1, where he makes his thesis statement that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What he's saying throughout the entire gospel is basically that he's wrestling with who is Jesus, who is this Christ, how has he manifest himself to us, how is he calling us to live and if we're looking at, again, this gospel in reverse order, so beginning with the resurrection, going through the passion, and then looking at the works of Christ, we see that he's taking this revelation of a resurrection and then going through the life of Christ to try to unpack, well, what does that truly mean? Because that's how the early church dealt with the reality of not only the resurrection, but the ascension. They wrestled with this reality of, okay, we had Jesus. He was here with us. He taught us all of these things. And now he's ascended. So the question is, now what? And we see that in the Acts of the Apostles. We see that in the writings of Paul. And we see that within the church fathers. And we see that within theology up till this day. So again, if we're going to try to understand what Mark is getting at in 
painting his picture of who Christ is, we need to understand that, seemingly, he's starting from the empty tomb and going all the way backwards through the life of Christ. So this is what we're going to begin with. We're going to begin with the passion narrative that, from our perspective, since we've been going from the beginning of the book to now, is what Mark has been building towards. And this is what Christ has been predicting time and time again when he's telling his apostles of his coming passion, of his death, and ultimately of his resurrection. So with all of that out of the way, let's move into verse 1 of chapter 14 of the Gospel according to St. Mark. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be a tumult of the people. So quickly breaking down these two verses, what we see is, again, the chief priests and the scribes plotting to kill Jesus. This has been a motif that we've seen over and over again within the Gospel account, and it's a result of the hardness of these individuals' hearts. Christ has challenged their authority, and because of that, they see him as a threat. And they have set out now to kill him, but to do it in a stealthy kind of way, do it in a quiet kind of way. And there are multiple reasons for this. The first of which is practical. If we think about the Passover, well, what's happening? Jerusalem is full. All of the people of God have come into the city to celebrate the Passover. And we've seen this track record of people taking Jesus' word over the authorities. So that is a genuine fear to have because if the people have been following him up until this point, well, then what we can assume is that, well, from their perspective, that of the leaders, it would be very easy for this to go south. It's not to go the way that they want. Yet we can also see an echo of Psalm 10 where we see that he's going to be killed by self. Because within that psalm, we see a similar motif happening. So this is another example of Mark calling us back to prior books within our Bible, within prior books of the Old Testament. And we're going to see a lot of this within the chapter. Because it's not just the Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Daniel and Isaiah references that we've seen time and time again within these past chapters. We see the Psalms sprinkled in. We see many books within the Old Testament sprinkled in to draw our attention again to this reality that if we're reading the scriptures, we're really reading this massive hyperlinked text because within all of these sections and within the various phrases that are used, they're very intentional. And the intention in using a lot of these words and using a lot of these phrases is to draw our attention to these other books within the Bible that expound upon what is happening. So those are kind of the two realities that are happening here. 
we see this prefiguration of the suffering servant as seen through the lens of Psalm 10. Yet we also see the practical reality that, well, the leaders are in fear of the people because there are so many people there, and there's this track record of them following Jesus. So if that's reality, well, they set out to kill him by stealth. And we'll see that the means by which they do that is through one of Christ's inner circle, one of the twelve, because it's going to be Judas, who we'll see in a couple of sections from now, who sets out to betray Christ, who sets out to trade him for pieces of silver. So moving on to verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. But there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment thus, thus wasted? For this ointment might have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they reproached her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you will, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burying. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in, her me in memory of her. So breaking down this passage, we see that Christ is in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. It's not very clear chronologically where this is taking place or when this is taking place, rather. But that's, again, going back to Mark's uh, finickiness with timelines and places. He's kind of bouncing all over the place because the message that Mark is trying to get across is the message of who is this messianic king, who is this Jesus the Christ, and what does that mean for us that he has come and brought this messianic age. So what we see here is this woman, and she approaches Christ with a jar of very costly ointment, ointment that would have cost roughly speaking, a year's worth of wages. And she breaks it open, and she anoints Jesus with it. And those who are sitting around Jesus, and within our tradition, we have this understanding that's Judas. Yet, within the text here, we see that's left vague. We don't know exactly who it is who's making this response. But the response that they make to her action is that they reproach her. Because this could have been given to the poor. It could have been sold and given to the poor. The money, the proceeds could have been given away. Yet Jesus tells them to leave her alone and not to trouble her. For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you will, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burying. And what we see within that statement is that he is prefiguring what is about to come. Because again, we've been pointing towards Christ's coming passion. Through all of his great actions that have shown his authority, we've seen this coming echo, as we've talked about time and time again during this Bible study, of his coming passion. 
And as we're going to see in this chapter, that's all going to come to a head. And he's telling them that as she anoints his body, she is doing what will not be able to happen because of the Sabbath and because of all of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' burial. He will not be able, they will not be able to prepare him in the same way that the Jews would prepare a body. And so in her anointing, she's giving him a great gift. But we can also see in the cost of that gift, that is a year's worth of wages, this metaphor or this motif, if you will, of this woman giving, in a sense, all that she has, or at least a great portion of what she has. And this is echoing the widow who gives all that she has to the temple that we saw a couple of chapters ago. And what we see with that widow is she's poor and she's needy, and yet she gives what she has. And within this example, we see those sitting around Christ reproaching this woman for not giving what she has to the poor, but rather anointing Christ with it. And this paints us a picture of where we're all called to be directed, whether we're poor, whether we're rich, whatever status we have in this life. Because at the end of the day, we're all called to be oriented towards Christ. We're all called to be oriented towards this life of service as he serves us. And both of these women paint this picture beautifully. And it's for this reason that Jesus says in verse 9, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So her name is not highlighted here. Her, here. She's anonymous, at least in this text. Yet what we see is what she has done, the great act that she has done in anointing Christ and giving all that she has in this regard will be remembered, and that's what will carry on. Because she has prepared Christ's body for his coming burial. So moving on to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So if we're going to read this text chronologically, what it seems is that we're moving from this scene in Bethany to Judas's betrayal. So Judas is perturbed in a sense from what he's seen and he's set in his heart to offer up Christ for pieces of silver Judas has a great wealth in front of him and that wealth is the ability to serve and the ability to be able to participate in the messianic kingdom through his role of an apostle because we're not let us not forget right now that the apostles are those who are being sent out. The apostles are those who have the distinct role of making disciples of all nations. And this is a great gift that's been given to this group. And yet, what is Judas doing here? Well, he's throwing that away. And he's throwing that away for pieces of silver. So in the sense, he's throwing it away for the things of this age 
So he has access to the Messianic Age. He's seen the fulfillment of what we're being called to be participants in. And yet he's choosing blood money over eternal life. And we're going to talk about Jesus a little bit more as we move forward, but I think it's important for us to take account of and meditate upon what it is he's actually doing. Because Judas has been part of the Twelve for all of Christ's ministry. Judas has been with Jesus throughout all of the great wonders he's done. And yet, for pieces of silver, he gives in to the hard-heartedness that has been intrinsic within all of those surrounding Christ up until this point. We've seen a battle for the souls of the apostles as they're being pulled back and forth. And we'll see that all of the apostles within this chapter are pulled away. But as we've talked about before, the story isn't over until they're dead. The story isn't over until their whole story is over. So they always have this opportunity, like we do, to repent in our life, as long as we have breath in us. And that's why all of the 11, minus Judas, who is not really dwelled upon within this gospel account, as much as he is in others, but the 11 who are left over, the 11 who return to Christ, repent. And in their repentance, they go out and carry out that apostolic call, that apostolic call to make disciples of all nations. So this is what not only the apostles, but we too today are called to do. We are called to go out and serve rather than to be served, because this is what Christ has done as well. (laughs) So as we go out to serve, we need to realize that Judas, one of the inner circle, decided to go in the opposite direction, even though he was called towards this life and service, even though he saw all of these great things that we would sit here today and say, well, if I saw all these great wonders happening, then I would definitely believe. Judas saw, yet in the end, he didn't believe. Judas saw, yet in the end, he offered Christ up for silver. So moving on to verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the householder, the teacher says, Where is my guest room? where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. So very quickly, what we see within the section is, again, like when Christ was making his way into Jerusalem, he tells two of his disciples here's where you need to go and here's what you need to do. And you'll know that you're in the right place by the sign. And the sign that he gives in this example is 
a man carrying a water jar. So this is a very strange sign from a perspective of a first century Jew, because typically the work of carrying water jars and whatnot wouldn't be something that a man would do. So this is already a very strange image that we're seeing. But if we want to think about this image from a archetypal perspective, what's happening is water, again, is associated with baptism. And baptism is associated with death and rebirth. So if this individual is marked by the water that he's carrying and the water that he's immersed in, well, what we see is the sign that we're given here is of somebody who relates to Christ's cause. And if we're looking at this from the perspective of someone within Mark's community, a first century Christian, well, when a first century Christian would be going around, they would be looking for house churches. They would be looking for those individuals that were hosting their love feasts, their liturgies. And they would be marked by their baptism. So in the same way that this individual is marked by the jar of water above his head, we have this image of Christ's not only death that's coming in his resurrection, because that's ultimately what baptism is an image of. It's of our descending into the waters and emerging as being reborn in Christ. But it's also this image that first century Christians would be able to attach to because it was something that was very real that they would experience in their life as they were worshiping with one another. And we see again that the disciples are going into this house. They see that's the way that Christ told them it would be, and they prepare for the Passover. So moving on to verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were at table eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, who, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So we see that the Last Supper has begun. And in the Last Supper, we see the Twelve begin to have this Passover meal. And the meal begins by Jesus saying this prefiguration of what's to come. And it's that one of them is going to betray him. The one who is dipping in the same dish as him. And this calls our attention back to Psalm 41, where you see a similar motif of betraying the one who is serv the servant of God. So if, again, we have this tie to the Psalms, what's happening is our attention is being drawn to this broader tradition, this broader literature, if you will, of our Bible, of our faith. And that's the prefigure what is to come and allow for the apostles after Christ has risen to understand more fully 
what it is he was telling them. Because what we see here is that he's telling them, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And they all get very concerned because they say, oh, is it I? Is it I? And the one who's offering him up knows who he is. He does this to test them. He does this to tell them all of the things that he's been telling them all along, which is that the Son of Man is going to be offered up. The Son of Man is going to die for the life of the world, if we're going to quote John. And yet, they still don't get it. They still don't fully grasp what is going to happen. And so we see this confusion. And yet, with this condemnation that we see of Judas, where Christ at the very end says, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. If we're going to unpack that a little bit, what we're going to see is that in this proclamation, we get a dichotomy between Judas receiving the price that he received for offering up Christ versus the price that he was given by being a servant, by being one of the apostles. If Christ is the source of life, ultimately the creator of us all, the Logos who in the beginning brought all in the creation, then the price that we receive by serving him as he serves us is eternal life. Yet, if we cling to the things of this age, if again, we're going to understand the motif of this age being a life corrupted by our actions, a life corrupted by sin, then all that that's going to lead us to is a life of death. Because death is the absence of life. Death is the absence of God. So if Christ is the source of life, if Christ is the one who brought us all into being, and yet he's openly rejected by Judas for the things of this age, for the things of this world, well then, what Judas has taken upon himself is death. And we have the accounts of Judas hanging himself in the other scriptures, and the other gospels, that is, and Acts, but we don't have that here. Mark leaves it at this, with the motif of Christ proclaiming that would be better for that man if he had not been born. And that's, again, to paint the picture of what he has chosen instead of eternal life. Through offering Christ up, Judas has chose to live in this age, which is opposed to the Messianic age, which offers life, true life, life fulfilled. So moving on to verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So these words within the verse two, uh, 22 and 24 should seem very familiar to us because within our liturgical practice in the Orthodox Church, these are words that are used within the institution of the Holy Eucharist, within the uh, 
bringing about of the Holy Eucharist, the, the crescendo, if you will, of the Divine Liturgy. And it's also calling back to a very similar line in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 25, where Paul is talking about this Eucharist left by our Lord. So what we see here is the institution of the Eucharist. What we see here is the institution of Christ's body and blood being imbibed and being taken in by his followers. And there's a lot we can unpack here, but for the sense of brevity, since we have a lot to get through tonight, I think what we need to highlight is why Christ is saying this commandment. What is the Eucharist? Well, the Eucharist is our possibility, our ability as Christians to allow for Christ to physically dwell in us. When we partake of his body and we partake of his blood, as Christians, what we're doing is putting on Christ. We're reaffirming our baptism in a sense. Because if we're called to live a life in Christ, what better life, way for us to live that life than to allow for Christ to dwell in us? And that's why you'll hear these metaphors often used of the Eucharist being like fuel to our fire, of being what gets us through the week whenever we're not commuting. That's why during Lent, which is right around the corner, in the middle of the week on Wednesday nights, we're going to see the service of pre-sanctified liturgy, where the Christians, as we're all fasting and as we're all struggling through this period of Lent, are rejuvenated not only at the beginning of the week on Sunday, but we're also rejuvenated by being able to participate in Christ's body and blood in the middle of the week. So this is what's going on within this Eucharistic celebration. It is our participation in Christ in a literal sense, because we are then not only building up to this Eucharist throughout the entire liturgy, but when the Eucharist comes, when it's time for that participation in his body and blood, we are taking him into us, so that way we can then, like the apostles, be sent out to spread him with the world, to spread his message with the world in the way that we live. And this is the third image, if you will, of a meal like this. Because if we go all the way back to the feeding of the 5,000 to 4,000, what we see is, again, this prefiguration of a heavenly meal that is even greater than the apostles realize. So the apostles are confused. They're looking around. They're saying, Jesus, how are you feeding all of these people? How could we possibly feed all of these people? And Christ is continually pointing them towards his Father who's in heaven, stating that all things are possible through him. And if that's the case, well, when we come to this third mystical supper, this fulfillment of the mystical supper, if you will, what we see is a literal presentation of what Christ has been telling them. Because not only are they looking for this metaphorical bread that will give them what they need, but literally, by taking in Christ's body and blood, 
the Christians are given what they need to continue this journey. There's a lot more that could be said, and we have luckily three more Gospels to go through, and I'm sure many other reflections where the topic of the Eucharist can come up. And I think then I'll be able to wrap my thoughts around this topic a little bit better. But for the sake of brevity and for the sake of moving forward, we need to realize, I think, that the importance of the Eucharist is this allowing for the indwelling of Christ within us in some literal sense. We're devoting an entire morning to coming to church. That's a sacrifice in itself. We're, we're fasting if we're looking at the tradition beforehand. And that's, again, this form of self-sacrifice. That way we're preparing for what we're going to participate in. We're confessing, if possible, beforehand. So that way we're as prepared as we can be. So that way when we allow for Christ's body and blood to dwell in us, we can be rejuvenated and it allows for us to then move forward and do what it is that we're called to do. None of this is systematic. None of this is we'll say, strict in the sense that you need to check off all of these boxes before that can happen. In fact, the most important boxes, and I'd say the most vital one, is you need to be a baptized and chrismated Orthodox Christian. And the reason why you need to be baptized and chrismated to partake in the Eucharist is because that is how we experience the fullness of our faith. That is how we're able to then be rejuvenated by communing with Christ, by renewing that baptism, by renewing that vow. It's by having that prior stage of preparation that allows for us to then use this gift for what it was intended to be, like the apostles, to be sent out to the nations. So with all my rambling out of the way, Let's move forward to verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to them, Even though they all will fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So when we see the Mount of Olives coming up, as we did in the prior chapter, that's to remind us that again we have this eschatological reality being shown to us we have a fulfillment of an end being portrayed to us because the mount of olives the only other place that it's referred to in the scriptures before the gospels is within zechariah chapter 14 and within zechariah 14 we see this vision of an eschaton we see this vision of an apocalypse so that's to remind us again that there's some there is a fulfillment that is about to take place. And that fulfillment, as we're going to see, is going to be Christ's passion. And in addition to that fulfillment, we see 
two other passages being quoted here when Christ is talking about the shepherd being struck and the sheep falling away. And those are Zechariah 13 and Isaiah 53. And again, I'm mentioning these scriptural passages to show how intertwined, especially this section of the gospel is, with the rest of the Old Covenant, with the rest of the scriptural tradition. And the reason why these verses are being quoted, the reason why these verses keep coming up, is to remind us that all of this was spoken of beforehand. The fulfillment of who Jesus Christ truly is isn't something that's some new invention. Rather, it's calling back to all of this theological development that has happened throughout the ages. So not, the Gospels do not happen in a vacuum because, as we see in the Gospel according to St. John, in the beginning was Logos. And if Christ was this Word, was this Logos in the beginning, well then there's this continual through line. And the continual through line is Christ. And that's why the Old Testament, our tradition, is fulfilled in the revelation of the Gospel. Because after we read the gospel, after we know this account of who Jesus the Christ is, well then we get to look through the Old Testament, through the scriptures, through a totally different light. Because now they're rooted entirely in him. And what else we see here is the prediction of the denial of Peter. Peter's very zealous. Peter is the rock who is going to come through and support the church at all costs. So if he set out to support the church at all costs, and if he truly has the zeal to follow Christ, well then he's going to do what he said. He's going to say that even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Yeah, what do we see Jesus say? Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter is, again, one of the closest of the twelve with Christ. And yet even he is predicted here to deny Jesus, to flee from Jesus. And if we remember that the account of Mark within our tradition is the account given to Mark by Peter, well, then we can be a little confused here and say, well, why is Peter painting himself in such a negative light? If you're sitting and trying to write your own autobiography, you're going to try to put some <laughs> flares on the way that you lived your life and the way that you did things. It's only natural. And yet in Peter's repentance, in Peter's reorientation towards the call he was given— after all of this happens, after he forsakes Christ three times, we see his humility come through within this text. We see his humility come through in the examples of his blindness and his ignorance that are presented. Because if Peter, in telling Mark all of these things, was trying to paint himself in this very positive light, well, we wouldn't see examples of things such as his betrayal of Christ, his three times denying him. So moving on 
to verse 32. And they went to the place which is called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what wilt thou? And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Raise and let us be going. See, my betrayal is at hand. So what we see here is the apostles falling away even before Christ has been offered up. And the picture that's painted is of Christ's agony in the garden. And the reason why Christ is so distressed, the reason why Christ is experiencing all these emotions is because we need to remember that Christ has two natures. He has his human nature, so he's fully man, but he also has his divine nature. He's fully God. Yet in condescending, in taking flesh and living as we live, he willingly experiences the full gambit of human emotions. He willingly experiences the full reality that we human beings experience. And if there's anything that's at the core of our being, it's that we desire to live because we were created for life eternal. And yet, because of our fall, because of sin, we die. And this is something that the flesh, if you will, cries out against. And as Christ is looking at his coming passion, as he is seeing what is about to come, because he knows what is to come, he's been taught what is to come, because he is the progenitor, he is one with the Father. So if Christ knows what is coming, if Christ knows that his passion is at hand, and yet his flesh is crying out, what we see here is an example of extreme humility. Because when he says that, Father, all things are possible through you, remove this cup for me, yet not what I will, but what you will, what we see is that he puts everything totally in the hands of the Father. He's not acting based off of this human will, off of this human nature, which is crying out and saying, don't let me die. <laughs> Rather, he is totally offering himself up, and he is freely participating in the will of the Father. 
And so Christ goes back to the big three, as we've called them, Peter, James, and John. The same three that have seen Christ transfigured on Tabor, the same three that have seen him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. And yet these three are asleep. And rather than Christ chastising them for falling asleep because the hour is near, he mourns. Because as we see in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And the reason why we hear that in the Beatitudes is because the mourning that's taking place is not over a general sense, but it's mourning over the fallen state that we're in. It's mourning over our weakness when you can see the great strength that is offered through life in God. So as Christ is being strengthened and he goes back and forth to pray three times, what do we see? We see the apostles being warned to pray. We see the apostles being warned to be vigilant because Christ knows what's coming. He's been preparing them all this time. And yet in their weakness, they cannot stay awake. In their weakness, they have already abandoned their closest friend. And so he tells them, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So moving on to verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him a sign, saying, The one I shall kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Master, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing on but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The betrayal is at hand. Judas has offered up Christ for pieces of silver. And the sign that he gives the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, those who have come with clubs as if they were going to seize a robber, is that he is going to go up and venerate. He's going to go up and kiss the person who is Jesus. And he walks up to his master, to his teacher, and in this two-faced way, what should be an image of love, an image of veneration, an image of honor. He uses his kiss as a kiss of betrayal. And so even though he was given this great dignity, even though Judas was given this great honor and love by Christ, he chooses the things of this world over his Lord. He chooses money over the mission he's given to be an apostle. 
And this is what's happening with the crowd that's around Christ too. Because in the same way that a few chapters ago we heard Christ proclaim that the temple was full of those who made it seem like a den of thieves, we see those same people who are being condemned come out against him like he's a robber, like he's a murderer, like he's a thief. And because of this, what we see here is a very vague sentence. And the sentence is that after they laid hands on him, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Within other gospel accounts, we have the individual identified, and there's more pieces to the picture. But for what Mark is trying to get across is the deafness of those who are now in prison in Christ. Because he was preaching openly in the synagogue. He was telling them what it is that he came to do. And yet, out of their own deafness, they've chosen to not take in what he has said, to not allow for his seed to dwell within them. They are the opposite of fertile soil. And that's not because there's some innate trait within them that makes them bad people, but it's rather because in their hardness of heart, in their giving themselves over to resentment and rage towards Christ, they have calcified to the point where they've given themselves over totally to these external forces pushing them in this direction. They have given themselves over to the spirit of this age rather than allowing for the Holy Spirit to dwell in them. And so as they're leaving Christ off, we see a very strange passage, which is unique to Mark. And to be honest, there's a lot of speculation that comes into play about who this young man is who follows him and why he was there and whatnot. And instead of entering into that dialogue, I want to look at this from a symbolic perspective. We see that this man is young and follows him, and that he has nothing on but a linen cloth, which indicates that he must have left his home in some type of haste, because all he was able to put on was this outer garment. So this man approaches Christ in haste. We can say this man has a fragile faith in a sense because linen is a very costly fabric. So if the linen cloth can be associated with the faith of this man, we see that the minute he sees, the minute that some adversity hits him, he runs away. And he runs away leaving behind his cloth. He runs away naked. This is an example of somebody who has put on Christ, in a sense. And yet, in doing so, he hasn't fully grasped what it is that he's done. And when that first adversity, when that first hardship hits, instead of being able to weather the storm, for he has truly embodied Christ, 
he ends up running away and fleeing from the Lord. Now, this is just an example of many, because all of the apostles, except for Peter, who we're going to talk about in the next section, fled from Christ. All of the apostles left, at least within this gospel account. Because as we know in our tradition and celebrate during the Holy Week, we know that John did not leave. But for the sake of understanding what it is that Mark is trying to tell us, he's painting this picture of total isolation. So moving on to verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes were assembled. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guard, and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him. And their witness did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet not even so did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he was silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So to begin with the section, we see that Peter is following at a distance. And as he's following at this distance, he enters the courtyard of the high priest, and he's sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now the word in Greek that's used for fire here, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have my Greek right in front of me, but the word I believe is phos, which is very unusual to use for light. His phos is associated with Christ. Christ is the light. So what we can see here is that Peter is clinging to this fire. Peter is still trying to cling to Christ, yet he has all of these temptations pulling him, pulling him away. And we see that coming because Peter is already at a distance. He's clinging to the spark of the light. And yet, already we see that he's been distanced from the true light. And moving on to what happens to Christ, we see that the whole council is arrayed against him. And we see that people are making all of these false claims about what he said, saying that he himself was going to destroy the temple made with hands, and in three days he'll build another not made with hands. Yet we see that not even these individuals can agree on what it is that they're condemning him for. There's no cohesion in their narrative. 
because he is innocent. He is sinless. And yet, he's still questioned further. And the high priest keeps questioning him. And he says, you have no answer? What is it that you're doing here? What is it that we've brought you here to condemn you about? They're looking for condemnation. And yet Christ says nothing. They're looking for him to defend himself so they can condemn him further. And yet Christ has no defense to make, even though he is sinless, even though he has done nothing wrong. And then the chief priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And for the first time in this entire gospel, we see Christ accept the claim that he is the Christ. We see Jesus put on this mantle of the Christ with a very simple statement of I am. And he proceeds with that statement by quoting Daniel and telling them that he is the son of man that was seen in the book of Daniel that will be seated at the right hand of the blessed, of the Most High. And by associating the son of man with God himself, what we see is a massive blasphemy for the chief priest. So he tears his garment in some image of mourning because Christ has now associated himself with God. He has used the name of God, I am, and not only used that name for himself as he did when he was passing by the apostles on the sea and trying to reveal himself to them all the way back then, but he's using this imagery of the Son of Man to show them how he relates to the Father. This is not a defense of himself. If anything, this expedites his passion because it's from this moment that they decide that they are going to bring him over to be condemned. They're going to put it in the hands of the Romans. And so they receive him with blows. They beat him they spit upon him. And that is how Christ is received by those who should receive him with glory. They have hardened their hearts up until this point. They have allowed for resentment and anger to seep in and take over them to the point where this man who has done no wrong, in fact, he has done nothing but good, is being treated not only as a criminal, but as the most wretched. They're beating him. They're spitting upon him. They're covering his face and telling him to prophesy, who hit you? And yet he's done nothing wrong. His transgression is against their authority. But it's not even the transgression in the sense that he is calling them and saying openly, you are wrong. We see in this whole narrative that Christ is not standing on a soapbox and defending himself and trying to tell these scribes, these Pharisees, the chief priests, how wrong they are and how right he is and how free he is and how he has come to liberate everyone. Rather, we see is Christ receiving these blows. We see Christ receiving these sufferings. And the only thing that he says 
is an affirmation of who he is with the hope of these individuals maybe after the resurrection having a dawn on them who it was that was in front of them. So moving on to the final section of this chapter. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the maids of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway. And the maid saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while again, bystanders said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself, and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the cock crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. As we saw in verse 50. 3 through 54. Peter is beginning to slip away. Before in this chapter, he was so zealous. He said that he would never abandon Christ. And yet, after the pestering of a servant, he falls further and further away as we see him proceed from the inner court to the gateway and ultimately, away from Christ. This is a very grim picture in a sense, because, again, Peter has been with Christ this whole time. And he's been very vocal in how he will never abandon Christ. And yet what we see here is a threefold denial. But... As important as it is to realize that Peter denied Christ, we need to pay attention to the final verses, or the final verse, that is, verse 72. Because we see in verse 72, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. In that statement of, and Peter remembered that Jesus had said, that calls our attention back to the fig tree. Because within that same chapter, when Christ was talking about the fig tree that had leaves externally, yet had no fruit to bear, we see afterwards, when the tree is withered, the same phrase being used by Peter. And this indicates to us that Peter's not stupid. Peter is conscious of what he does, maybe after the fact, but regardless, he's still conscious. So he sees that he's done wrong. He recognizes that what Christ told him was going to come true has come true. He's denied him three times. And yet the very last verse that we see in this chapter is that he breaks down and weeps. 
even though he flees from Christ for this moment, we know in the example of St. Peter within our church that when Christ raises, he takes on his cross, literally being crucified as Christ was at the end of his life. So even though he denies Christ three times here at the end of this chapter and he flees from him for the rest of his passion, leaving Christ isolated and totally alone as he's brought before the Romans and later scourged, further beaten, marched off, and hung on a cross. Even though Peter has abandoned him and allowed for him to go alone to this faith, he will repent, and he will later on continue to live up to the call that was made of him. And I think this is important for us to realize because all too often we look at the actions of individuals, and it's easy for us to say, well, that person is a bad person because they did this awful thing at one point. And yet, we don't realize that until the day we die, and maybe even further, maybe through, we always have the possibility of repentance. Some of the greatest saints in our tradition did horrible things. But the important thing is that like Peter, when the time had come, they repented. And repentance, again, isn't this one-time deal of saying, oh, I'm sorry, and everything's washed away. But rather, it's a changing of mind. It's a reorientation of your whole being. So that way, we can reorient towards the way we were called to be. So we can be participants in this life in Christ. So even though Peter forsakes Christ, even though all of the twelve leave him in some regard, What is most important thing out of all of this is that we know how the story ends. We know that after Christ raises from the dead, his apostles, minus Judas, come back to him. And after they come back to him, and after they see him ascend into heaven, when they are strengthened at Pentecost by the Holy Spirit, as it appears in them like tongues of fire, they are then sent out to all the nations to make them disciples of the Lord, to share his love, to share that same light that Peter was holding onto the spark of as he was in the outer courtyard and allowing for it to not only be fostered in themselves, but allowing that same spark to take flame in others. So whenever we fall away, in whatever way that that manifests in our life, it's never hopeless. We can always repent. But as we've talked about time and time again during this Bible study, to be able to repent, we need to lower ourselves as Christ lowered himself for us. We need to take the posture of a child, the posture of a student, and free our minds of all of our presuppositions, of all of our biases that tell us that we're right regardless of what the facts may tell us. 
because it's only through truly receiving that liberation of truly freeing our minds and allowing for Christ to dwell in us that we can be participants in him. That when we go and commune on Sunday if we're Orthodox Christians, that we allow for the gift we are given to be shared. We allow for him to dwell within us so that way we can be strengthened and not only be strengthened in ourselves, but then be sent out to strengthen others. So let St. Peter be our example. Even though within the Gospel according to St. Mark, this is the last we see of him, we know how his story unfolds because it is St. Peter who's telling Mark this account. And we know ultimately how Peter made witness to Christ as he was martyred, being an example for the church as a whole to see even to this day. So thank you all for listening to this session. Thank you all for being here, who are here live. And until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, Links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m., and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.